This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Baker. Today is Friday, Yom Shishi, Gimel Adar, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Pashat Truma. Gimel Adar, among other things, is the yard site of the Adaret, Rav Eliyar David Rabinowitz Taomim. The Adaret is known, first of all, because he was the father-in-law of Rav Kook. He was the Rav of first Panovich and then of Mir for many, many years. And finally, in 1901, he became basically the Rav of Yushalayim. Rav Shmuel Salant was still alive, but very, very old. And so the Adaret was formerly his assistant. In effect, he was the Rav of Yushalayim for three years, for four years. He died in 1905, 101 years ago. And the Adaret was one of the most prolific authors of his time, he published at least a hundred different works in almost every area of Torah. Uh, one of the svarim that he wrote, which wasn't published, it was published many, many, many years later, it was a small booklet called Nefesh David. And Nefesh David was a book he wrote for his children in which he said he was going to describe his midot tovot, his good virtues. The book, unless you think otherwise, is, is reeks of, of modesty. It's an amazing, it's an amazing sefer. I read, I read the book one time in Chodesh Elul, uh, late at night. On, on, uh, I was in the army during, during, during guard duty, and I still think it's the best Musa sefer I ever read. There's one thing in particular that I'd like to tell. He, he has a section there where he writes that at times he began to doubt himself whether he has any midot tovot. Does he have any good virtues at all? Because he knows he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, and then one nechama. He had one consolation. He knows he has one good midah, one good virtue, and that is the love of Eretz Yisrael. And how does he know that he truly loves Eretz Yisrael and, not, and doesn't just pretend and convince himself? He says because every time he thinks about Eretz Yisrael, he wrote this, of course, when he was still in Chutzlaut, when he was living in Mir. Every time he thinks about Eretz Yisrael, he begins to cry. And then he adds the following sentence. And in fact, as I write these words right now, my eyes are tearing over. That was the Avat Eretz Yisrael of a Gadol Batara 100, 120 years ago living in, living in Lita, living in, living in Namir. Today's Pasha is Pasha Teruma. Pasha begins with the call to give Teruma, to give donations in order to construct the Mishkan construct the the house, the residence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the Pasuk says that they should give, everyone should give whatever they want, as opposed to the short Pasha we read a week ago, Pashat Shkadim, which is, we'll read it in the Torah, in two weeks, Pashat Kitisa, uh, which is a tax, in order to support the ongoing work of the Beit HaMikdash, is Chatsi Shaka. Half a shekel for each person. But the building of the Mishkan was done b'nidava. Kol asher yidvenu libom tikhu trumati. You should take the teruma, the donation, from whoever will yidvenu libom. His heart will lead him to, to volunteer, to contribute. Nidava, out of the goodness of his heart. There are two points here that I think should be made. One is that, indeed, the Mishkan is a specific desire of God that the Mishkan be built from voluntary donations 
and not from tax. And the whole Torah is tax. The word tax may have a negative meaning to us because we don't like paying taxes, but the Torah is obligation. In fact, we have a principle that says, Gadol that doing something because you're required to do it is better than doing something which you're not required to do. The, the whole Torah is the idea of commandment and mitzvah and that we are servants of God. But specifically here, in the building of the Mishkan, God said, although in general, Gadol it's better to be commanded and to do than not to be commanded and yet to do, but the Mishkan is different. The, the Mishkan is built out of a gift of a gift of the person purely because he wants to. And I think the reason for this is found in a careful reading of the phrase. It doesn't say call Asher Yitnadev, whoever will voluntarily give. Call Asher Yidvenu Libo, a curious phrase, which literally means everyone whose heart will volunteer him. Your heart volunteered you. Call Asher Yidvenu Libo, Take a turma from he who whose heart has volunteered him. And I think what it means, not that you're giving a gift, but your heart is giving you. You are the gift. And why? Because the real building blocks of Beit Hashem are the people. And not the materials, not the Kesav, Zahav, Nechoshet, Tchelet, Va'agaman that's listed in the Pasha. Of course, to build a Mishkan, you need Kesav, Zahav, Nechoshet, Tchelet, Va'agaman. You need all those materials. But if it had been a tax, then the Mishkan would really have been built out of out of those materials, out of silver, gold, and copper, and wood, and cloth, and hides, etc. But since the real building material of the Torah, the real substance is the human will. God really dwells in the human soul. And therefore, when the materials are given as a voluntary donation, so part of what's being given, I think even the main part of what's being given, is the nidivut, is the will, the free will, the voluntary will, the generosity. That's what's being given. And that's what, in fact, the Mishkan is made out of. The real substance is the will of the giver, and the physical materials are only the medium to carry that on. About which the Pasuk then concludes, Ve'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham. They will build me, God says, they will build for me a temple and I will dwell in their midst. Not in its midst, not in the temple, but in the midst of the people. The, 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 ultimately, the real Mishkan, the real Mikdash, is Him. And the reason why they could be the Mikdash was because they built it not out of silver and gold, but out of the generosity of the will. Kol asher yitvenu libo. Their hearts donated them. They were, they were in the gold. And then the Shekhinah is also in, in them. Today's guest is Harav Rani Tzigla, who we heard five weeks ago. And we'll continue in this time, the second installment, in his occasional Every Now and Then series on the books of Harav Salavechik, of which Harav Tzigla is one of the editors of the series of the Tarat Harav Foundation, which is putting out those books. 
we will have about Sigla every now and then to continue his discussion of the different of different writings, and we are happy to have him here with us this week. Haravu ben Sigla. Welcome to today's podcast, which is the second in a series on Rav Soloveitchik's posthumously published books. As I mentioned last time, uh, Rav Soloveitchik left hundreds of manuscripts and uh, left instructions to his children that they should uh, do with them what they see fit. And uh, so far, six volumes of uh, his manuscript writings have appeared, with more in preparation. Today I'd like to discuss a book called Out of the Whirlwind, Essays on Mourning, Suffering, and the Human Condition. Now, you may ask, uh, we just had Rosh Chodesh Adar, and Purim is coming up, so is this the most appropriate subject to discuss uh, in this time of the year? And I think the answer is yes, because if you uh, think about it, Purim, the Rav used to say, is the holiday of Jewish vulnerability. Um, it showed the precariousness of their existence. Because of one spiteful prime minister of Persia and one foolish king, uh, the existence of the of the entire Jewish people was put in danger. And uh, this is a major motif in Purim. It's not just merrymaking, but also vulnerability. The Rav used to say that actually the two contradictory elements in Purim were split into two days. They couldn't both be kept on one day. So the, the heavy part is on Tanida Ster, and the light part is on Purim itself. Um, but uh, the topic of our book, uh, which uh, Out of the Whirlwind deals with the question of human mortality, uh, suffering, how one is supposed to deal with these things, um, I think it, it will fit, as we'll see later, uh, into the, uh, the theme of Purim, the theme of human vulnerability. Uh, and it's for that reason, by the way, that the Kabbalists used to draw a connection between Purim and Yom Kippurim. Uh, both of them are occasions when man faces his, uh, the possibility of his demise. Now, the most basic question of any religious philosophy, not just of Judaism, is the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Rav Soloveitchik has a very striking response to this, uh, but before we get into it, I want to point to an important characteristic of his philosophy in general. The classic medieval works of Jewish thought, whether philosophical or Kabbalistic, are all written from God's point of view. In other words, they explain the nature of God's providence over the world, how and why he created the universe, how and why he communicates with prophets, the reasons he gave various mitzvot, etc., etc. Rav Soloveitchik and others uh, in the contemporary era shifts the focus. He no longer views the classic issues of Jewish thought from God's ultimate perspective, but rather from the limited human perspective. Rav Soloveitchik knew that after Kant's acknowledgement of the limitations of the human in, uh, intellect, it was impossible to speak philosophically from God's perspective, nor was modern man attuned to such metaphysical talk. People need to understand how to deal with things from their own human point of view. Uh, one illustration of this trend in the Rav's philosophy is if we would compare his treatment of Talmud Torah, Torah study, to that of uh, his great-great-grandfather, or maybe I missed a great there, uh, Rav Chaim of Volozhin. Rav Chaim of Volozhin, the founder of the famous Volozhin Yeshiva, wrote a famous work called Nefesh HaChaim, and the, the most celebrated section of that is, is the fourth section, where he deals with Torah study. Now, more than just explaining the importance of Torah study, the Nefesh HaChaim develops an entire theological system which places Talmud Torah at the apex of human achievement. 
And the reason that the Nefesh HaChaim so extols Talmud Torah is because of its unrivaled and indispensable effects on the metaphysical realm, the world, the world of the Sefirot, to use the Kabbalistic terminology. Um, in a sentence, uh, whereas all mitzvot have positive effects on one Sefirah or another, Talmud Torah leaps over all the Sefirot and has an effect straight on the Ensof. So therefore, it's the most powerful religious activity that one can engage in, in terms of effecting a metaphysical repair in it, within existence. Now, Rav Soloveitchik also extols Talmud Torah. However, not because of its effects on God, but rather for its effect on man, on the person who studies. Talmud Torah cleanses the human personality of its vulgarity and its pettiness. It fosters bold and creative thought. The Rav devotes an entire book, Halachic Man, Ish Halacha, to delineating the contours of the religious personality that is shaped primarily through its immersion in Torah study. Um, Thus, we see that although the Rav's philosophy places God at the center of man's existence and it demands unqualified commitment to God, nevertheless, it focuses its attention on man and on his problems. Um, now, to turn to our topic today, uh, one of the most striking examples of the, of the Rav's tendency to view things from the human perspective and not the divine perspective is his treatment of the problem of evil and suffering. Uh, in his Moranavuchim, the Rambam, deals with the problem in a metaphysical manner. He says that from God's perspective, evil doesn't exist. I won't go into the details of his answer. You can look it up in the third section, chapter 10, of the Mornevuchim. Now, Rav Soloveitchik, on the other hand, says, I don't know what goes on on the metaphysical level, but evil, suffering, is an undeniable human experience. Whether or not it exists metaphysically or not, human beings experience it, and you can't deny that. Therefore, he's not going to explain away suffering on an intellectual level. Such an approach, such as that adopted by the Rambam in Mornevuchim and, and others, it would be problematic on several grounds. First of all, it's intellectually shaky. How can we know if we have a finite human intellect? How can we know what God sees from his infinite perspective? Second of all, and perhaps more powerfully, it's morally objectionable. If someone is unfortunate, if he's suffering, if he suffers a loss, if he's, if he's in pain in any way, to tell him that metaphysically there's no such thing as evil denies the legitimacy of the person's suffering. And third of all, not only is it intellectually shaky, not only is it morally objectionable, but such an explanation today is practically useless. It does not help a sufferer cope with his pain. The Rav says uh, in, in one place that in Europe, perhaps, uh, in the generation of his grandfather, you could give a metaphysical explanation of suffering and it would help people cope with their problems. And he said when he came to America in the 1930s, steeped in European learning, he became a congregational rabbi in Boston and he had to deal with the pastoral duties of a rabbi. And one of those things is to deal with people who are in pain, who are suffering, who have had a loss. And he told them what he had learned, uh, you know, the metaphysical explanation. And he said, you know what? It didn't help anyone. And therefore, instead of giving a theoretical explanation or justification of suffering, which is a passive undertaking, the Rav instead proposes a practical, active, halachic response. In other words, he's not going to explain why man suffers, but he will say, given that man suffers, what should he do? This doesn't deny the reality of suffering, 
And he, say, he says, this is how halacha works. It doesn't ask why, but what do I do? This is the way of halacha. Now, in a nutshell, his response to suffering, what should I do when I face suffering, is repentance, tshuva, which means the ability to utilize suffering as a catalyst for self-improvement or self-creation. So now we have to ask, well, what does the Rav mean by using suffering as a catalyst to self-creation, to self-improvement? Um, in, in Kol Didi Dofek, where it's the first written place where he, uh, well, he actually talked about it in an earlier place, but uh, that's the, that was his major treatment was in Kol Didi Dofek, an essay uh, which was based on a speech in 1956. Uh, it was published uh, around 1960. He says there that the message of, of suffering, the lesson that we have to learn is empathy. When one experiences his own vulnerability, he learns about the interrelation, the dependence on others, and it should make you more sensitive to others, feel sympathy, feel fraternity, and get involved with chesed. Uh, it also teaches you that we have to firmly resolve to fight evil, whether the evil is disease, poverty, or even amalek. Now, in Out of the Whirlwind, the Rav adds a whole new dimension to this discussion. In other words, in Kol Dofek, he said that, that we have to use suffering as a catalyst for self-improvement. He offers one, one way in which to do this, but he doesn't really go into detail about what to do. What, what do you do with your suffering? In Out of the Whirlwind, the Rav does develop this in much greater depth, and that's what I want to discuss for the remainder of our time. And he does this on the basis of his own experience. And uh, this is the background to, to the essays that he, that he writes in Kol Dofek. The Rav was giving uh, a series of lectures sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health between 1957 and 1960. It was a three-year series. In late 1959, the Rav was diagnosed with cancer, and he had to undergo surgery. Uh, as we'll see, he says he wasn't sure that he would survive at all. He uh, pa- put, paused his classes. He had to delay his daughter's wedding, uh, for over a month so that he could recuperate. And uh, then when he resumed his classes several months later, he gave uh, a series of lectures which are contained in the book Out of the Whirlwind. They're the title essays. The, the lecture called Out of the Whirlwind in the book of the same title is the speech that he gave upon his return after recuperating from his own encounter with mortality. Um, and in that essay, he's very uncharacteristically open about his own illness, and he talks about two things that he learned from his illness. Now, I think that uh, if we have time, I'll explain why these are relevant, not just to one's encounter with death, but to other occasions as well, um, which we'll develop soon. Um, I think that they have clear relevance to not just to man's ultimate confrontation with his mortality, um, but even to our annual confrontation with our mortality, namely the Yamun Naraim, where we plead with God to, for, for life, to give us another year of life. Um, and in the context of uh, Purim, Kipurim, I think that it's relevant to discuss today as well. Uh, so let me open, I'll read a passage where the Rav talks about what he learned from his illness. Um, I'll read first from page 134. He says, The night before my operation, when my family said goodbye to me, I understood the words of the psalmist, Ki avivi mi azavuni When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. 
I had never understood this verse. Did a parent ever abandon his child? Of course not. Yet in certain situations, one is cut off even from his parents or his beloved wife and children. Community life togetherness is always imbued with the spirit of cooperation, of mutual help and, pr and protection. Suddenly one realizes that there is no help which his loved ones are able to extend to him. They are onlookers who watch a drama unfolding itself with unalterable speed. They are not involved in it. This realization brings to an abrupt end the feeling of togetherness. I stand before God, no one else is beside me. A lonely being meeting the loneliest being in utter seclusion is a traumatic, but also a great experience. In other words, uh, the first lesson is the lesson of loneliness. Uh, one realizes that he stands alone before God. It leads you to feel closer to God. There's no one else upon whom you can de depend. Uh, this, I think, we can also see in other contexts. For example, uh, in the context of Yom Kippur, many people have been puzzled by the minhag of saying kol nidre. Uh, some people uh, even eliminated it from the liturgy. Uh, Rav Shemshon Raphael Hirsch in his first shul uh, eliminated it. Uh, why should one commence the solemn day of Yom Kippur with a prosaic declaration renouncing of one's vows? Why is Kol Nidre recited in this tune that, that, that is so awe-inspiring? According to what I just said, uh, quoting the Rav, it becomes clear. If you're going to stand before God and ask Him on Yom Kippur to grant you another year of life, then you have to divest yourself of all other commitments and commit yourself solely to God. You can't enter the day of judgment on Yom Kippur without saying kol nidre, saying, I stand here like the Rav on the threshold of his operation, realizing that all my other commitments are limited, only my commitment to God is infinite, and therefore I commit myself solely to you, and therefore I have the right to plead for another year of life. The second lesson that the Rav learned, the second way that he turned his suffering into, into, into growth, was by confronting non-being. He says the following. I'm reading now from page 131. Um, my existential awareness before his illness was an absolute one. Non-being did not enter into it. I would not sustain my gaze upon nihility. Whenever I started to think of death, my thoughts were dashed back and they returned to their ordinary objective to life. Uh, when I looked on my grandson, I always tried to think of him as if he were my contemporary. I believed that we would always do things and play together. Then... Sickness initiated me into the secret of non-being. I suddenly ceased to be immortal. I became a mortal being. The night preceding my operation, I prayed to God and beseeched him to spare me. I did not ask for too much. All I wanted was that he should make it possible for me to attend my daughter's wedding, which was postponed on account of my illness. A very modest wish in comparison with my insane claims to life prior to my illness. The fantastic flights of human foolishness and egocentrism were distant for me that night. In other words, when one... End quote. In other words, when, when one stops perceiving himself as being immortal, then on the one hand, it will relieve one's petty fears and worries, and it also awakens his awareness of, the, of, of time, of the limited amount of time that he has on earth. It enables you to assess, wait, given that I am mortal, that now I have actually internalized the fact that I'm mortal, why am I here? why did God place me at a specific place in a specific time with specific talents? What am I supposed to accomplish with this? What's my unique mission? The Rav says, God summons man to service. Our life is a meaningful assignment, abounding in responsibility and commitment. So when one confronts the possibility, when one confronts the fact that one is mortal, then it should awaken in you a sense of 
commitment and mission and to clarify who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, now, this is relevant also to Yom Naraim, when we do a Cheshbon HaNefesh. In fact, Rav Lichtenstein once gave a very nice explanation that's related to this. Um, we know that there's a mitzvah year-round to do tshuva, to repent for sins. Uh, however, the Rambam says that uh, there's a specific mitzvah of doing tshuva during the Aseret Yemei Tshuva. Why do we need two mitzvot? What, what is the nature of this specific mitzvah of tshuva during the Aseret Yemei Tshuva? What does it add to the mitzvah that we have year-round? So, Rav Lichtenstein suggested that uh, year-round they were commanded to do tshuva for specific faults. I did this wrong, I'm not going to do it again, I'll try to improve myself. But during Aseret Yemei Tshuva, we do a radical tshuva. We examine our fundamental assumptions, our fundamental direction, not point by point, what did I do wrong here, but where am I headed? What am I doing with myself? Not in response to any specific stimulus, but just a general uh, re-examination of one's path. These are very important themes in the Rav's thought in general, and that they demand uh, they demand a careful thought on our part. Uh, if everyone is summoned by God to fulfill a mission, uh, then suffering can awaken one to this awareness and can make him get back on the path that he's supposed to be on. Uh, the Rav says that, in general, God will give one bounty and will give one the ability to fulfill his mission. Uh, however, very often we're distracted by the pleasures of our existence, by the, by the bounty that God has given us, and we're distracted from what we're supposed to be doing with it. God has given it to us. God has given us abilities and means to accomplish certain things. And if we don't respond to God's summon through bounty, then God will summon one out of the whirlwind, as the title is. Out of the whirlwind, out of the whirlwind of suffering. Um, and this forces one to confront his destiny. We need to use our good fortune properly. We need to respond to it uh, before we are summoned in an alternate way. It is a matanal tnai, the Rav says. God has given us gifts to use in order to help others, in order to further our mission. So, um, to conclude, uh, just as Yom Kippur is a day of Cheshbon HaNefesh, uh, Purim also uh, has an element of Cheshbon HaNefesh, because whenever one confronts one's vulnerability and one's mortality, one has to perform a cheshbon nefesh, and uh, much more than what I have said uh, can be found in this book. And I hope that uh, that both Purim and Yom Kippurim will stimulate all of us to do the proper cheshbon nefesh, and that we should respond to God's summons out of bounty and not out of the whirlwind. Shabbat shalom. You have been listening to Harav Roni Ziegler speaking about the books published by the Torah Foundation, the books of Maran Harav Yosef Dova Levi Salavajik. Rabbeinu Bachia, in the beginning of uh, today's Pasha, has a little, a little hint, a little gematria, which it's worth remembering just in order to know the facts. He says, V'shachanti betocham. The Chazal say that the first Beit HaMikdash was in existence for 410 years. Second Beit HaMikdash was in existence for 420 years. If you don't remember the numbers, so the Berbachia gives you a, a key. V'shachan ti, v'shachan tafyud. God will dwell, 
Taf Yud 410. That's the first Mikdash. Taking the same words, same word, Vishachanti, and changing the order of the letters. Vishaini, Vav Shin, Nun Yud. The two letters which are missing are the Taf and the Chaf. Vishaini, and the second one, Taf Kaf, 420 years. As Vasuli Mikdash Vishachanti Bitocham, I will dwell in their midst 410 years, and the second time, 420 years. Bimera Beyamenu, Bibinyan Beit Mikdashenu Hashlishi, the third Beit Mikdash, Kashbachu will dwell in it forever. Referring to the same Pasuk, Vasuli Mikdash, the Shach, Shabtai Kohen, who incidentally is Yotzeg, was yesterday, points out that it says Vasuli Mikdash and not Vasuli Mishkan. The entire narrative. Pashat Truma, Pashat Tzaveh, Pashat Vayaka, Pashat Pekudai. This building that they are building is called a Mishkan. Therefore, we always refer to it as a Mishkan. The Mikdash refers to the Bayit, to the, the built house that was built in Eretz Israel, in Yushalayim, which is called Mikdash. It's true, the Gemara says, Mishkan Ikri Mikdash, Mikdash Ikri Mishkan. That the words can be used interchangeably, allowing us halachically to learn one from the other. But nonetheless, the, the Torah consistently refers to the, the tent built in the desert, what's translated as a, as a sanctuary or a tabernacle, is referred to as a mishkan. Only over here, this one time it says, Vasuli Mikdash. The Shach points this out. And the Shach explains with the same principle that I mentioned in the beginning of today's, of today's broadcast. He says, the real Mikdash, the real thing being built, is the Jews themselves. As this Pasuk says, Vasuli Mikdash, Vishachanti Bitocham. He says, that's why it says, Vasu. After all, God says to Moshe, tell the Jews to bring you the materials. So it said, and then you will construct the Mikdash. They just bring the materials. But it says, not Vasita, you should make the Mikdash, Vasu. They should make the Mikdash. And the reason is, the Shach says, because that you may be putting the materials together, but they are building the real Mikdash. Because the real Mikdash is, again, the human being, the human soul, the dwelling place for God, the Merkavah Shechina, the, the, the support, the chair, the throne of God, is indeed the human, the human, the human presence. So the Shach says, and how does one do that? How does one make oneself into the seat of the holy presence of the Shechina? So the Shach says, it's not by having the intention to be a Mishkan, to be a dwelling place for God. The intention that you have, which makes you a dwelling place for God, is to be a Mikdash, to sanctify yourself. You don't intend God should dwell within me. What you intend to do is make yourself a better person, to do mitzvot, to learn Torah, to sanctify your life in midot, in, in, in the way you act, the way you think. That's your intention. Doing that Make sure you're Mikdash. You sanctify yourself. You become a Mikdash. If you're a Mikdash, then Vishachanti, Vishachanti Betocham. The Shach points out in the end of this pasuk. It says, "V'asuli Mikdash Vishachanti Betocham Kachol Asher Ani Marei God says you should make a Mikdash. Then he continues, according to the plan that I'm going to show you, Moshe Rabbeinu, Sinai. The end of that pasuk says, "V'chein Ta'asu." So Shach says, what do you mean v'chein ta'asu? It says, v'asuli mikdash kachol asher ani marei otcha et tavnit ha-mishkan. You should make the mikdash according to the plan. 
and thus shall you do. If it wasn't for the Vav, it just said, thus shall you do, so you would have split the Pasuk. Vasuli Mikdash, Veshachanti Petocha, make a Mikdash, and I would dwell in the midst. According to the plan, do it. I mean, it wouldn't bother us so much that it says, do it twice. But what do you mean, Vechein Tasu? If it says, Vechein Tasu, then the Pasuk has to read, do the Mikdash according to the plan, and thus you should do it. So it's totally unnecessary, and thus you should do it. It says, do it according to the plan. What do you mean, and thus you should do it? So the Shach says, no, because there are two different sanctuaries being built. One is, in fact, the physical one, which indeed is built out of gold, silver, copper, and, and, and skins of animals, etc. And that's built according to the plan that I will show you on the mountain. V'chein ta'asu, do the same thing again. What's the again? Because the real, ultimate mikdash, mishkan, is the human, is the human personality and human soul. So you should build that according to the same plan. The Shach then continues, without going into the details, he claims that you can draw a parallel between the real Mishkan and the human personality, for instance, the Avon HaKodesh is the human heart, and then he goes, he goes through the entire, the entire human body and draws parallels between the structure of the Mishkan and the structure of a human being. Uh, the details are, are interesting, but the, the, the important point is the principle. You should build a Mikdash out of materials, physical materials, V'chein ta'asu. And then do it again in and of, in, in yourself. And now, as usual, we conclude with the Halakha Yomit. And now for today's Halakha Yomit. The Halakha we did uh, yesterday, but not diving in a high place, is one example of what the Rambam calls Tikkun Makom. The Rambam in Hulchot Tefillah organizes the, the numerous, the tens of halachot scattered through Hilchot Brachot into given categories. And one of them is called Tikkun HaMakom, making the place appropriate. And yesterday's halacha was one example of that. The ultimate Tikkun Makom, which Ramam doesn't even mention in his halacha of Tikkun Makom, but the ultimate halacha dealing with the place to Davin is the halacha of Beit Knesset. The Mechaba Paskins in Shulchan Aruch, Yishtadel Adam Litpalel Beveit HaKneset Im HaTzibu. Ve'im hu anus sheino yachol levo lebeit HaKneset, yichavein litpalel b'sha'ash HaTzibu mitpaledin. Notice the language of the Mechaber is Yishtadel Adam. person should make an effort. person should try. It's impossible to say that this is a chiyuv, but it's a good thing. It's something which a person should try should try to do. From the sugyot that deal with Beit HaKneset in Masechet Brachot, there would appear to be two different reasons why a Beit HaKneset is special. One has to do with the fact that it's tzibu. Basically, Going back one step, there are two different halachot here. One is to daven tefillah b'tzibur, and one is to daven b'veit ha-knesset. Daven tefillah b'tzibur, you could daven even not in a beit ha-knesset. And the way the, if you take all the different poskim together, the way the poskim uh, grade the different possibilities is, the best things daven in a beit ha-knesset, a shul, makom kavua, b'tzibur. The next best thing is daven b'tzibur, even shlobo beit ha-knesset. Sometimes you make a private minion someplace. If you can't have a mitzibur, then there's halacha 
which most poskim quote, although it's not explicit in the Gemara, but most poskim understand that it is it is the interpretation of at least some of the Gemara that one should daven bebeitaknesit even when there's no tzibur there. The fourth level is that which the Mechaba mentioned in the extension of what he said, what I quoted, that if you're davening at home without a tzibur, you should daven at the same time as when the tzibur is is davening. What is what is the ma'ala? What is special about these things? So one is to daven b'tzibur. There's a whole long list of gemarot that explains why it's good, why it's special, why it's appropriate to daven b'tzibur and not be achid. All of which come down to, in the end, the statement she tefilat hatzibur nishmaat tamid, quoted by the Rambam lehalacha. Tefilat hatzibur is is accepted, is heard by God. Tefilat hayachid, tefilat a private person. Who knows? That depends on whether or not you're worthy. Who knows if you're worthy? Who can even say? Who would want to say? Who has the guts and the chutzpah to say that he's worthy? But tefilat hatzibur. Nishma'at, Nishma'at Tamid. And so that is why one should have in From that it would appear, in dealing with Beit Knesset, now we're talking about Tikkun HaMakom, that there is a Ma'ala, there is a special virtue of Beit Knesset because it's the place where the Tzibur davens. In other words, the difference between Beit Knesset and some other place, uh, my office where we have a minion on, on, uh, during lunchtime, is that the Beit Knesset is a place which that's, that, that is its purpose. It's makoma kavua le tefila And since tefila has a special virtue, a special ma'ala, so the place where the tzibur davens is also a place to which, I guess you could say, God's ears are, are attuned. And therefore, one should daven in a bet knesset, and as I said, most poskim understand that one should daven in the Beit Knesset even if there is no tzibur. But if you can daven at home, be yichidut. Or daven Beit Knesset, be yichidut. It's better to daven in, uh, in, 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 in the Beit Knesset even if it's be yichidut. There would appear to be a second uh, virtue, a second ma'ala to Beit Knesset. And that is because the Beit Knesset is Beit Hashem. It's the house of God. It's a Mikdash Ma'at. It is like the Beit HaMikdash. It's a replacement for the Beit HaMikdash. A small, a minor, a, a, a replacement for the Beit HaMikdash. For instance, the Gemara in Berchot of Chet HaMadal says, Kol HaMashkim Ma'ariv the Beit HaKneset Ma'arich Yamim. He who gets up early and comes late in the evening to the Beit HaKneset will be granted long life. Fortune is the man who listens to me. He comes to my door every day and 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 keeps watches over the Mizuzot of my of my doorways. In other words, it doesn't talk about Makom Shotfila, it's talking about my doorways, my place. Betaknesset is uh, the place of God. The pasuk then continues. The next pasuk, kimotzi matzachayim, that therefore you get you get life. Um, similarly, the Gemara says, "Kol haulech boke ve'erel ve'ta knesset bolam hazeh zochel asot kim ve'ta mikdash la'atid lavo." If you go day and night 
to a Beit Knesset. In this world, you will go in the next world to the Beit HaMikdash. Shenemar Ashrei Yoshvei Beitecha Od Yadu Chasela. He who dwells in God's house will do so again, will do so in the future. Words, the definition here is that it's God's house, and Chazal were aware of the fact that the Beit HaMikdash, God's real house, is not existent, so they said, if you're in a Beit Knesset now, you'll be in a Beit HaMikdash in, in the future. So I think that there are two separate uh, ideas involved here. One is a place where the Rabbim, the Tzibur, Davins, that's a place where God is listening because God has an agreement with the Tzibur of Klai to listen to their tefillah. And the second halacha is that it's a place which is simply the Shechina. It's a place where Ba'olam Hazeh, the Shechina is found. It's called God's house and God appreciates. God says, come daven in my house, not daven in your house, come to my house to daven, to daven there. Then there's another halacha. It says if you're not davening b'tziba and you're not davening a Beit Knesset, there is a malat to daven at the same time as when the tziba in your town is davening. Apparently, the idea is that it's not a special place, but it's a special time. The time when the tziba is davening is an eight ratzon, because since God again is listening to the tziba at that time, God has an agreement, he has a brit with Amisel that he listens to hatziba, he listens to tziba of Israel. So God is listening. If God is listening, it's a good time for you to daven. I think some people also explain it somewhat m- relatively more mystical manner that when the tefillah tzibur is going up, you can somehow attach your, your tefillah can ha- hitch a ride on their tefillah. But the simple shot is that there, is, there are in fact places which are special for tefillah. And also there are times which are special for tefillah. And therefore, if a person is davening b'chidut because he was unable to come to daven b'tzibur, he wasn't feeling well, he's not able to make it, the time that the tzibur is davening is also a time which is special for tefillah, time when God listens to tefillah, and therefore it's a better tefillah to daven at, to daven at that time. There's another halacha, which is quoted by many poskim, that says that there is a ma'ala, there's another added benefit of davening with a lot of people. Berov am hadrat melech. No, it's not just davening with tzibur. Tzibur is ten people. Any ten people is called a kahal, it's called a tzibur of Israel. But there is also mother of berov am hadrat melech. This basically refers to a different aspect of tefillah. Not to the acceptance of tefillah, not that tefillah tzibur nishma'at tamid, to daven with tzibur gives you a better chance of having your tefillah be accepted. But berov am hadrat melech means that it's it's a better praise of God. Now, it's not that you will be heard better here, but part of davening is service. Tefillah, Shemon Esrei, is called Avodat, Avodat Hashem. The word Avodat, the word Eved. It's the service of God. We, 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 we refer to God's kingship. We make God king by serving Him through Tefillah. And the more Am, the greater the number of people, the greater the Machut, the greater the royalty, the greater the kingship of God is. And so therefore, many poskim think that you should daven with the largest minion possible. Uh, here, there's a consideration which I think everybody agrees to, is that tefillah, the heart of tefillah, of course, is kavanah. And therefore, when one chooses a minion, or one chooses a shul, it's very important to also choose the shul to which you feel most comfortable, which you can, which you can have the most kavanah. And therefore, halach we all know that there are 
uh, small shuls and big shuls. No one really argues with um, with that with that uh, existence. You have to daven where it's best for you to daven. It's a fact that sometimes in very very large minyanim, some people find it difficult to have the correct and proper relationship with God. But in any event, if all the things are equal, the poskim do say that there is a uh, special ma'ala, a yitaron. There's something special about a tefillah which is said berov am, and therefore. If all the things are equal, and you can go to one of two shuls, one with a bigger minion, one with a smaller minion, so they think you should go to the to the bigger minion. If it doesn't take too much of a price from you and your personal kavanah, your personal relationship with God. That's it for today. Wishing you all a Shabbat Shalom Umvorach. We've completed another week of KMTT. We'll be back next week, come Monday, another installation in the Shir in Hilchot Barachot. Until then, this is Ezra Bick and Gush Etzion in Yeshivat Haratzion, wishing you all Shabbat Shalom from KMTT. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah, udvar Hashem mi Yerushalayim.